This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through, this, through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph called him Jesus. Thanks, Al. Our Advent series is concerned with the topic of miracles. Because the story of Jesus coming to earth, the story of, of God himself coming down to our world wrapped in human flesh is a miracle. It's supernatural. We cannot explain it or fully understand it. And so we have two gospel accounts, a man by the name of Luke and a man by the name of Matthew that I'll just read his account from, who tell this story of Jesus coming to earth. Now, last week, Pastor Brad spoke from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And he looked at this small passage of Scripture that has some of these details about how things happened. We heard about how uh, Mary was, or excuse me, both Joseph and Mary, they went to Bethlehem because there was this Roman census. We uh, kind of theorized what this traveling would have looked like and her being pregnant. We found out there wasn't room in the inn, and so they ended up having uh, the child out in, in a stable where there was a manger. And, and Pastor Brad looked at this and said, well, are these just kind of ordinary things? Or are these not kind of minor, smaller miracles that all fill into this larger story? Now, none of us, at least to my knowledge, I could stand to be corrected, none of us have traveled a great distance to fulfill a government census. And none of us have taken a feeding trough and turned it into a makeshift crib because we didn't have one for a child. But Mary and Joseph have something in common that you and I probably do as well, and that is that we improvise. We do what needs to get done when circumstances change. When life gives us a bit of a curveball, we usually figure out how to make things go, even if it weren't as planned. We're survivors. And of course, our context is different than Mary and Joseph, but if you can uh, think about your own life over the last few weeks or even thinking about what the next few months will look like, I'm sure you can find some similar circumstances. The power went out a few weeks ago. Lots of you probably lost electricity. And so whether you're at home or at work, the power went out. You probably didn't like it. It was unexpected. But you didn't just sit there and do nothing. You figured it out. Life threw you a curveball and you did what needed to be done. So for those of us who are really in poor circumstances... We got into our vehicles and we drove someplace that was lit 
And we sat down and we had people serve us food. And we thought, man, we're roughing it. We have no electricity, but we're going to do what we've got to do in order for life to keep on going. There's other things in life. If, if there's a child in your home and they wake up screaming because they're ill, you do what needs to get done, you sacrifice sleep, you, you change your schedule, you ask for help, and, and you take care of that child. Work assignments, more responsibilities than you anticipated. They pop up in your life, and so you do what you have to do. It's an unforeseen situation. You may not like it, but you have to compromise other areas of your life in order to satisfy what has to get done. And I think this idea of kind of, well, this is unfortunate, but, you know, well, let's, just, let's just get it done. We could probably apply that same formula to that story in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. You could say, these aren't really miraculous events. This is just... This is just life, you know? Government says you got to do this. All right, well, it's too bad that my fiance is pregnant, but off we go. Too bad she's really pregnant. Too bad that this establishment we go to has no room in it at all, but that's just life. And nature takes its course, and all of a sudden, boom, the baby comes, and all right, well, next to the ox and the sheep and the hay or whatever images we have that may or may have took place. And this is kind of the daily stuff that you and I are are used to. Just the simple occurrences of life. You don't really know what's going to happen, but when it comes, you take care of it. Some people say, well, they're just coincidences, or it's good luck, or it's bad luck. Some people say, nope, I don't believe in luck or anything. That's just it. It is what it is. And it's become especially common in our day and age to say, well, this is actually the result of karma. Karma is this... This ancient understanding that everything has a cause and effect. So if you're at a Starbucks and you laugh at someone who spills coffee on themselves, well, you know, karma says maybe the next time that person spills coffee, it's going to be on you. Maybe you spill it on yourself. Or maybe some bad thing's going to happen. And on the other side, well, if, if you're generous in some capacity or especially loving, well, karma would say there's going to be effect for that. So later on in your life, some other good thing is about to happen. But could we not look at the story of Luke chapter 2 within that small little context and say, that's just life. It's just cause and effect. It's just karma. It's just coincidence. Whatever. And I think that Luke would definitely not have that intention in mind for us to take that interpretation, but we certainly could within those seven verses. If we were to read the rest of his story and the rest of his gospel, we would certainly see a much bigger picture for what he's trying to communicate to us. But I think it's easy to say there's nothing all that miraculous in this story. Matthew, on the other hand, he takes a much different approach. Luke's story is a bit more detail-oriented. He, he gives us some, some answers to questions that we may not have even had. And Matthew just flat out tells it to us straight. But he takes his time doing it at first because the first 17 verses in the first chapter of his book are all about a genealogy. And basically what he wants us to know is the fact that Joseph the human father of Jesus, he comes from the line of David. And so he tells us, uh, son, you know, father, son, 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 all the way through uh, down to Joseph. And he kind of concludes by saying, well, Jesus comes from this line, this line of David. And we might think, well, that's fine. Like, you could have just told me that in, in one verse. But for Matthew, this was extremely important to his audience this Jewish audience that immediately they knew the scriptures, they knew that this Messiah, this anointed one, this promised one, had to come through this line. 
And so he tells us that in the first 17 verses. And my guess is there's probably no one here who's really spent a lot of time worrying about that part of the Bible. Thought, oh man, you know, everything else I can believe. But that whole part about, about Jesus being in the line of David, that keeps me up at night. I've read four books about that and I don't know how I can reconcile that. But in verse 18, this is where things get interesting. And this is probably where many of us have scratched your heads and said, I actually don't really know what I do about that. Verse 18, Matthew tells us how the birth of Jesus came about. Mary's pregnant, but she's not yet married. And then he gives us a a quick explanation for how this happens, and it's quite shocking. The pregnancy is due to the work of the Holy Spirit. Mary's pregnant. She hasn't had any sexual relations with anyone. She's a virgin, but yet she is pregnant, and the explanation is it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where the problems begin in Matthew's gospel. And I say problems for a reason. Because I think if we're really honest with ourselves, when we think about the topic of miracles, we often think of them as problems. Now, if you've experienced a miracle in your own life, uh, maybe someone really close to you, an unexplained cure of cancer, a, a, a sudden change of events, you would say, oh, absolutely not. A miracle is amazing. It's a cause for rejoicing. A miracle, I would define that as something that, that I was in a situation where you could do nothing. You were powerless. You could not fix anything. And then God intervened and amazingly everything was transformed. That's what a miracle is. But think about the times that you hear about secondhand miracles. The miracle that you heard from a friend, from a friend of someone's cousin's roommate's ex-boyfriend, and you think to yourself, That seems kind of like a weird story. Huh, I wonder if it really happened that way. Or you read about it in a book, or or you hear some sort of of rumor about this miracle that happens, and so often I think we look at these miracles and, and we don't quite know how to process them. And it seems almost natural to us to question their validity. Now, whether we choose to call these occurrences in Matthew's Gospel miracles or problems, we have to call them something. And there's probably been a time in your life, or maybe you're in that time right now, where you don't know what to do with these things. You don't know how to explain the angelic appearance, or, or the, the virgin birth, or, or Christ coming down in human form. You're not quite sure how to process this. And we're, we have to process it somehow. We have to understand our logic and our explanation, because if there is no Christ, well, there is no Christianity. Christ is not born, then there's really no faith at all, whether you choose to accept Christianity or not. If there's no death and resurrection of Jesus, well, there's no reconciliation to God. There's no forgiveness of sins and and rebirth into a new life. If there's no second coming, then there's really no hope at all or expectation for Christians. So what do we do with these miracles? Now, in Matthew's Gospel, there's at least four miracles in this short little story here in in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. We find out that Mary is with child through the Holy Spirit. We find out that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph through a dream, no less. Uh, Thirdly, uh, we find out that that this baby, Jesus, is going to save his people from their sins. That seems supernatural to me. What does that even mean? And finally, we found out that all these things occur because it's fulfilling a prophecy 
A prophecy of a man who lived hundreds of years earlier. How could he possibly have known what would happen? We have all these supernatural events. We have all these miracles. And we really can't prove any of them or find out how they came about. And yet the birth of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, is probably the miracle that puzzles us the most. It's probably the most widely miracle that we know of. It's the miracle that houses every other miracle. C.S. Lewis says it very well when he says, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The incarnation. It's the miracle to examine when we talk about the topic of miracles. But let's face it, and let's be brutally honest right now, we're talking about a miracle. <laughs> I mean, miracles are not easy to believe. They're not easy to accept. We're talking about God coming from wherever He dwells as Spirit, coming down in human flesh through a, a young woman who's never had sexual relations with anyone and being born as a screaming, crying child just like all of us once were. Uh, this is not easy to believe. But, of course, miracles shouldn't be easy to believe. If they would, well, they really wouldn't be all that miraculous now, would they? But how can a person, how can you really believe in this story? Now, it's my opinion that a good amount of people at one time in their life, and I wouldn't know the percentage, I've never done any data, I'm not a scientist, but my guess is that most people in North America, at one time at least, believe this story. Now, maybe it was because they went to church growing up. Uh, maybe someone in their family would read the Christmas story out of Luke 2 every Christmas. Maybe they had a friend tell them. Maybe they, they watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and there's that part where Charlie Brown gives the true meaning of Christmas. My guess is pretty much everyone at one point, they accepted this story. They believed it. They accepted it. It was okay. People seemed to nod their heads and agree, and, and so they were okay with this story. But then... This person, maybe it's you, the child grew up. And every person who grows up, at least every responsible adult as we would call them, they begin to ignore or to learn the true things of how the world works. And so they become a little bit more rational and practical and philosophical and they think about some of those things they learned as a child and they kind of mock their own ignorance at the time, their own naivety. I mean, they learned that all these teachers that they had growing up, they actually don't live in the classroom. They have houses. Some of them are married. And, and, and this false view of the world they had was, was not correct. Uh, they learned that there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, no matter how many times they've tried to get there, and there's no leprechaun to fend off for the, for the gold. The Apostle Paul says it this way. This is biblical, much different context. I'm totally taking this out of context, but listen to what he says here. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the childish ways behind me. And I think lots of people take this idea, this formula of it's a cute story. It's good for the kids. Lots of parents will say that. Well, it's, church is good for the kids. A Christmas story, it's good for the kids. And they take this idea and they apply it to this formula. They think, you know, it's time to leave fantasy land now. I'm a mature, rational adult. 
And let's just face reality with how our world works, what nature tells us about the world, and whether a miracle is possible or not. I mean, the story of Jesus' birth is interesting, but it can't be historical. It can't be factual. The nativity scene, it's beautiful. It's iconic. But so is Santa and his reindeer and the sled. Like, what's really the difference between those? And you know what? Despite all the songs that we may sing and, and the things that our culture tells us, uh, the reality is, is that Santa Claus isn't coming to town this year. And so what do we do then with this story? What do we do with this idea that, that Jesus came to earth in human flesh? And whether you're a believer or not, there will come a time that we're all faced with this question and we have to grapple with this idea. Virgin girls do not get pregnant. So what do we do with the miracles here in Matthew's story? How do we make sense of Matthew's story according to the rules of nature? Because this is the world that we live in. It's the world that we know. And it seems simply foolish to accept anything else besides it. Well, I'm indebted to C.S. Lewis. And for all of those of you who have read his works and enjoy his works, you'll find it no surprise that I spent a lot of time over the last month or so reading his book called Miracles. And so I'd highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in this topic or wants to do some further reading. C.S. Lewis is, is an interesting man because, uh, first of all, he's brilliant. I mean, he's a philosopher, uh, he, he, he's educated, he's well-read, but the thing I love about C.S. Lewis the most is that one time he was an atheist, and through his, his readings and, and his convictions and, and through a lot of rational thinking, he came to be converted to become a Christian. And so Lewis knows both sides of this. He, he knows uh, thinking about this topic as as an atheist, as a naturalist, and now thinking at the, at the topic as a Christian, as a believer. And he explains that any argument against miracle relies on one of two grounds. If you have any beef about a miracle, you have to say, well, it's in this camp or it's in this camp. He says one camp is that you cannot have miracles because that goes against the character of God. And the other is, he says, you cannot have miracles because that goes against the character of nature. Now, the first objective is far less prevalent than the second, so I'm going to have to bypass that a little bit this morning. And today's message is a bit more philosophical than we're used to. It's, it's not as much a base right here in the story of Matthew, because Matthew just flat out doesn't tell us exactly how we're supposed to understand these miracles. And so the first objection that it's against God's character, I think in a setting like this, for many people, they understand, well, if I do choose to believe in God, especially the God of the Bible, I'm okay with the idea that God can be so powerful that he can perform miracles. That doesn't go against his character at all. I believe that he's concerned not only with this world, but with me individually. And so I think that this is, is much less of a problem than it once was maybe 50 years ago or so. But this second question of nature is still extremely relevant. Does the character of nature, does the laws of nature make it possible for miracles to happen. And many of people will say no. No. And it's this conviction that leads them to discredit the, the incarnation, the virgin birth, and, and all the miraculous events in the Bible. And typically, the reason why they would say no is because we are a learned people. And over thousands or tens of thousands or however long you want to date our, our world for, that humanity has continued to evolve and to get more and more brilliant. I don't know what the statistic is. You hear it every once in a while. It happens 
less and less now, but our information doubles. It took like however many thousands, hundreds of thousands of years or whatever for information to double, and now it doubles like every 10 years or something like that, just because of we're in the information age. We're smarter. We're better educated. We have more experience to draw through. We know so much more about the world now than we once did. And so many people will say, well, this might have been an appropriate story. Maybe this was, was some sort of divine thing back in the day to think about miracles happening because we believed other things like the world being flat and those crazy islands kind of being this magnet that would shipwreck ships. And we thought about the Loch Ness monster and you know all these sort of things. We once thought about that. But we're at a day and age where experience tells us, experience tells us that miracles just can't happen because it doesn't fit within the natural order. But I think the point we need to remember with experience is that experience alone tells us what has happened. It doesn't tell us whether or not something is possible. Your experience and my experience are incredibly valid, and we learn a lot of things. But just because you've had a particular experience for your, maybe even your entire life does not mean that having a different experience from that is not possible. I have a few friends, a few married men, who at one point in their life were extremely unsuccessful when they asked girls out on a date. Every time they tried, they got denied. And you could say, well, the rule at that point in their life was whenever I asked out a girl on a date, I got rejected. The rule is that this isn't possible. And yet that was simply their experience. There did come a time. There did come a different circumstance when this was not only possible, it actually was probable, and it ended up happening. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, mere experience, even if prolonged for a million years, cannot tell us whether the thing is possible. And as Lloyd Christmas would remind us, uh, even if the odds are stacked against us, even if the odds are one in a million, this doesn't mean that we don't have a chance. And here's the point. Those who believe in miracles, they're not saying that the laws of nature don't apply. They're not saying that they don't understand the laws of nature. They're simply saying these laws can be suspended. These laws can, can be halted for a moment. Miracles, they would say by definition, is an exception to the rule. We aren't ignoring the rules. We aren't ignorant of the rules. We just say that miracles are, are kind of that one in a billion chance where there is an exception to that rule. And any past experience can't prepare us for that fact. And that's the odd thing about our topic today is it's a bit of an oxymoron. It's a bit ironic. We're talking about miracles here. They are supernatural events. And typically we like to look at our natural world and think, well, if it doesn't, if we can't explain it through our natural world, then it can't be possible. But of course we're talking about a supernatural event. So it makes sense if we can't explain it in our natural world that it would be a supernatural miracle. If we could then it would no longer be supernatural. It would just be natural. Now that everyone is confused, we'll, we'll continue right on. But a miracle is, is a bit trickier than that, especially for the scientists that lives inside each one of us. And, and we value this in our day and age. We've, we value provable data and evidence. And, and so it's simply not enough, I think, for many of us to say, well, it's just an exception to the rule. We just live by that. How can we live in a world where we say, well, we know all these natural laws, but every once in a while there could be this there's exception to it. How do you do that? What does that tell us about God? If God can just suspend the natural order every once in a while, that seems a bit odd. It feels like playing a game with an eight-year-old. You ever done this? 
An eight-year-old boy makes up a game and you start playing with it. You start to learn the rules and all of a sudden you start winning and then all of a sudden he stops and then there's a new rule and all of a sudden you're way behind again. It feels like that's God in this scenario. I'm just going to, I set up nature and I set up all these laws, but I'm just going to put this on hold for a second and then kind of insert this supernatural miracle and, you know, let you to figure out how that happens for you. Or to raise a different complaint, if God is required to suspend the laws of nature in order to perform a miracle, what does this say about the relationship between God and nature? That God can simply manipulate nature whenever he wants to? It doesn't sound like a relationship that is built on harmony. It doesn't sound like it lines up with what we know of the character of God as, as loving and harmonious and as united with one. And if we are to say that God is the creator of nature, it seems a bit odd that he could just suddenly manipulate it as he would like to in order to execute a miracle. Well, in order to understand the relationship between God and nature, we, we have to do a little bit more philosophy, and we've got to think about this in, in through different terms. I think so often we look at the laws of nature, whatever law it might be, and we think the laws of nature are about cause and effect, cause and effect. And so we look in the past and we do experiments and we see cause and effect, and, and that's what we can think about in the future. So when we think about miracles, we think, well, it just doesn't follow that pattern, so we have to discount them. There's a whole bunch of different laws in, in nature. One of them is the law of probability. So I remember to put a coin here in my pocket. And the law of probability would say that if I flip this coin enough times we would get a 50-50 split between heads and tails. That's what the law of probability tells us. Now, if I flip this six times, we should get three heads and three tails, but you know what? We, we actually could get four and two. We could get five and one. It's, it's possible. But the law of probability says the more times we do this, the more likely we get a 50-50 split. So I'm now going to split this coin 300 times. No, I'm just kidding. So the idea is the more times you flip it, the law of probability will prove true. Now here's the catch though. I've got one coin here. I'm take out another coin here. Now let's say I flip this coin a thousand times and I get a 499-501 split. We'll just say that's what we get. Law of probability, right? And I, and I flip this coin as well, but I get a 700-300 split. But then what if I told you, you know what? This here's an honest coin. This one here is a loaded coin. This one's manipulated. It's not weighed the same perfect balance that the way this is. Now, what we would say is we would say, you know what? The law of probability is actually the same in each one. That law has not been broken. We would say, actually, the cause is different. We've got two different objects here. And that's actually a, a bit of an understanding for the fact that laws of nature, laws of probability, they're concerned with effects feed a formula into the system, and the laws of nature will give us an outcome. To use a different example, think about a, a billiard table. Think about a billiard table. You have all the different billiard balls scattered all out. There's laws of motion there, but it takes a cause before the laws of motion for, for anything to happen, for us to analyze anything. So it might be a cue stick. You could take a cue stick and you could hit one of the billiard balls, and that would set off a chain reaction, and the law of momentum would say... Uh, you know, the energy is transferred from one ball to another and has to be of, of equal momentum, if I remember that correctly. But it could be a much more improbable cause. It could be an earthquake, right? And then that would change the momentum of the balls. And so the point that, 
that we have here is that nature responds to the cause with its natural effects. A cause can be different. And for a different cause, nature will respond accordingly. And this is why miracles leave behind natural effects. For those of you who have done some reading on this subject, um, or, or you've heard different stories, uh, there's a number of, of ideas out there for how these miracles in the Bible happen. If you, we look back to maybe the ten plagues that, that Moses, that through the power of God, enacted on Egypt, there's a lot of natural reasons for how this could have happened, be it through wind, be it through chemicals, uh, be it through animals, seasons of the years, all these kind of abnormalities, and they leave these trails of natural causes. And a lot of people say, well, that was just a natural thing. It wasn't a miracle. I want to, you to listen to how C.S. Lewis says this because he says this way better than I. And so hopefully this will bring about some clarity. He says, if God annihilates or creates or deflects a unit of matter, he has created a new situation at that point. If God creates a miraculous spermatozoan in the body of a virgin, it does not proceed to break any laws. The laws at once take it over. Nature is ready. Pregnancy follows according to all the normal laws, and nine months later, a child is born. We see every day that physical nature is not in the least accommodated by the daily inrush of events from biological nature or from psychological nature. The moment it enters her realm, speaking of nature, it obeys all of nature's laws. Miraculous wine will intoxicate. Miraculous conception will lead to pregnancy. Inspired books will suffer all the ordinary processes of textual corruption. Miraculous bread will be digested. The divine art of miracle is not an art of suspending the pattern to which events conform, but of feeding new events into that pattern. It does not violate the law's proviso, if A, then B. It says, but this time instead of A, A too. And nature, speaking through all her laws, replies, then B too, and naturalizes the immigrant as well she knows how. She is an accomplished hostess. A miracle is emphatically not an event without cause or without results. Its cause is the activity of God. Its results follow according to the natural law. You see, the wisdom of our day says that miracles don't happen. I'm based on what, what I know of nature and what we can see from the laws of nature. I can totally understand this thinking. It makes a lot of sense. But it does not think about the other dimension. It does not look at a realm outside of the natural world to see whether there is a power, whether there is being who has the ability to enact a new cause into, uh, into the equation. And so God, in, in his incredible power, he chooses, as he looks at our world and as he looks at the sin that has tarnished it and, and what humanity has done with the responsibility, he chooses to enact a new cause, a pregnancy and a virgin woman. And from that, nature takes its course. And the child is born. And the child becomes the God-man fully divine, and fully human. Now, if everything I've said so far this morning has been way too philosophical for at this time of the morning, or maybe you've just thought, you know what, I don't believe in miracles, doesn't matter, or vice versa. I believe in miracles, still doesn't matter. Then I, can hope, I hope I can leave you with one story that will hopefully give you a bit more of a practical application. You see, you and I are not the first people to struggle with the concept 
of the miraculous. I'm quite sure that Joseph struggled with that concept when he spoke with the angel that day. And there's many other people, be they extremely intelligent or not so intelligent, or incredibly godly, or perhaps not godly at all, or with any interest of being godly. There's a story at the end of Matthew's gospel. We were looking earlier at chapter 1, and I want to look at chapter 28. And it's the story of another amazing miracle, the resurrection of Jesus. And what happens in this story is that two women, they go to the tomb, and they're met by an angel, and they're told that Jesus has raised from, been raised from the dead, and they're instructed to go tell the disciples. So they're on their way, and on their way to tell the disciples, Jesus appears to them, and they see him, and they worship. They grab his feet, and they worship him. And Jesus says, go tell, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. And so the women do this. So the disciples, they go to Galilee to meet Jesus. And the text says in chapter 28, verse 17, that when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. They saw him with their eyes. They heard his voice. Perhaps they, they touched him, but yet some still doubted. And I don't think that Matthew includes this in his gospel to teach us that those who doubt are somehow more inferior to those who believe in a shorter amount of time. I think he records the story simply because uh, this is what he witnessed. This was a story that he knew about. And the fact is, is that it's a journey. It takes time to process what our eyes are seeing or, or not seeing in some different cases. It takes time to accept the fact that the miraculous has happened. The disciples worshipped him, but some doubted. And I really don't know if any amount of evidence will ever convince some of us. In fact, I'm quite sure, because there's many things that we have an incredible amount of evidence, and yet we still can't accept, just like some of those disciples who would have seen it and experienced it themselves, they still had this realm of doubt in their life. And my guess is that for some of you today, your experience is the same sort of thing. But maybe you're not ready to make a decision. Maybe you still need to ponder these questions a bit further. Maybe you still need to, to think about what a miracle is and why, in fact, Jesus would need to come down to earth in the first place. And if you're in that spot, that's totally fine. Take your time to ask these questions. Ask good questions. I hope you continue to visit us as we ask these questions together and process them as a community. But I think some of you sense the fact that it's time for you to make a decision. You've experienced, you've seen, you felt some conviction. And you might still doubt some aspect, though, of the life that Jesus speaks about. You might be able to identify this doubt. Maybe you can't. Maybe it's more of a feeling than a thought. But regardless of where you're at in that situation, I'd like you to take some action this morning. I want you to say something to God. You don't need to stand up so that other people see you. You don't need to say anything out loud. You can do this in your head. You can write it down. You can do it later today or, or later on the week. But I want you to take action. I want you to say to God, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. This is the same words that a man said to Jesus when he asked Jesus to, to heal his son. 
Jesus said, all things are possible to him to believe. And I want you to say, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. You know, Christians are often criticized for being anti-intellectuals. They're often thought of as, as individuals that don't look at the facts. They don't use reason. They don't look at the natural world and, and they just take this little piece of, of evidence or faith or whatever you want to call it and they just say, you know what? Sure, I believe in that and let's just keep on going. And, and a lot of people say, that's just so naive. How could you possibly do that? And I certainly hope that that's not the way that you choose to live your life and, and I hope that, that for all Christians that's not the way that they choose to live their life. But there's other Christians, and I'd probably put myself in this category on the opposite side of the extreme. They get so wrapped up in wanting their question answered that it becomes all-encompassing. And they need more evidence. They, they need more facts. They're, they're grappling with it so much that it keeps them from seeing the bigger picture at hand from realizing the point of miracles. And we see it here in this story. The response to the story of Christ's birth, the response to His appearance to the disciples here, the point of miracles is worship. The point of it is recognizing that this is something so supernatural, so outside of any of our experience or expectations that all we can do is pause and worship. And so we're going to close our gathering with this response this morning by worshiping God through music and with our voices. And some of you uh, may be more musical than others, and, and you may wish to, to raise your voice and, and to sing and worship as the band comes up. And some of you, maybe not so much. But in either case, I want you to reflect on these lyrics. I want you to think about what it means for God to perform a miracle. And like the disciples, I hope that you respond with praise that you choose to worship, that you choose to adore Him, that you choose to say, Lord, there's lots of things I don't know and, and I might still be on a journey with this, but I will believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The grand miracle, the miracle of God becoming man, born of a virgin woman, it leads us to worship. Let's pray. Lord, there's so many things that we don't understand of our world and of you. And for all the amount that we could ever uh, theorize about or, or guess about what miracles are all about, there comes a point, Lord, where, where we have to accept. We have to believe. And you call us to believe, God. We cannot have a faith without believing. So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our belief, not, not just in, in miracles as a whole, but in this story, the story of, of you, God, becoming man in the form of Jesus Christ, humanity. And so God, I pray that you would help us, help us to believe, and that this would, would be a conduit for, for how we live our lives, in faith knowing that we serve a God that can do what we would consider the impossible, who can perform miracles. So Lord, we give you our praise and our worship. You are holy. You are miraculous. And Father, we adore you. Amen.